Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we are live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. In our last talk, we were going through the first months of John and Yoko's Sometime in New York City. We have now reached the sparkling new year of 1972, the year of the album's release. And uh, to recount the first part, they moved there spontaneously in uh, August 1971, um, but they are never to return to the UK and they embed themselves in various local causes. And before long, they've got enough songs together for an album. And if you're recording an album, I guess you might want a band. So what do you do? You get the finest musicians in all the land. Absolutely. New York, a hotbed of recording, hotbed of sessioners. You know, the, the, the magnificent album called uh, Checks Notes Ram has been recorded in New York. You can really get the creme de la creme there. Yes, yes. So that's what you would do. You're John Lennon. Or, 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 you could just get a bar band. Yeah, <laughs> you could just do a Chuck Berry. Is that unfair? Well, the bar band in question is called Elephant's Memory. And, uh, you know, from the get-go, I don't know about you, but I think that's a terrible name for a band. It is a terrible name for a band. Yeah. Um, but it does lead to the Plastic Ono Elephant's Memory Band poem. Okay. That's the only redeeming <laughs> small mercy of that name. Yes, yeah, small mercy. Um, and Elephant's Memory were a band formed between 1967 and 1968 by Stan Bronstein and Rich Frank Jr. And there's certainly something very 1967 and 68 about the name Elephant's Memory, you know? Yes, it is. It is that, uh, you know, Jefferson mm. Airplane, the plastic pink inevitable exploding. All of that stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and where are they at when they kind of enter the, the John Lennon orbit? How do they get to there? They have had some success. They they, they they appear on the soundtrack to Midnight Cowboy because that's a kind of quintessential yep. New York. And they are they are a kind of quintessential gritty New York rock band. Interestingly, briefly, Carly Simon was their lead singer. Mm. I think I think Carly and uh, Elephant's Memory should get back together and do a <laughs> You know, do a reunion gig. That'd be great. I don't know. It, it it certainly gives us reason to get Carly onto the podcast, you know. That would be very good. Yes, let's let's get uh <laughs> let's get Carly Simon. I'm all for that. Let's abandon the Beatles and let's get let's do our well, Carly Simon podcast. 
you know, you know who plays that bass line on your Sylvain? Yes, exactly. Who plays that? Yes, it's Klaus. It's Klaus. So it's Klaus. It, it's Klaus. It's, it's it's what's that phrase? It's all connected. There you go. Um, so supposedly, <laughs> supposedly, what happens is Elvin's memory record a live set for a Long Island radio station. I imagine that's like you know Alan Partridge style hospital radio. But um, that tip gets to Jerry Rubin, who for some reason passes it on to John Lennon. So I think we can blame Jerry Rubin. Uh, so according to, and I have to pronounce this, I think it's Skyhawk. Gary Van Skyhawk is how you pronounce that. John listened mm. to, ju- he's the bass player. Uh, John listened to just loved the tape. He just heard all the ingredients that he liked. So he was very interested and apparently decided to come down to one of our rehearsals at a studio called the Magna Graphics down in Greenwich Village. He stopped in one night. He didn't even make it into the room. Our road manager was apparently out there talking to him for a while. We wouldn't really let anyone come to our rehearsals. Well, of course, if John Lennon turned up, you would say, (laughs) no, turn him away. Uh, We just thought they were putting us on. I think we kept him waiting for about an hour before he finally made his way in. He was very cordial. And said he was decked out in a white suit like like he had on the cover of Abbey Road. I have never seen a photograph of John Lennon in a white suit in New York. No, neither have I, so... Perhaps it, perhaps it, perhaps it was George Harrison. <laughs> who, yes, who was in his yes, white suit. Yes, yes. Hmm. Uh, so apparently they 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 jammed for hours and hours and hours. Yeah. It says here, and uh, they decided to capitalize on their chemistry and merge the two projects. And Yoko immediately spotted the synergy and went plastic on elephant's memory poem. It's meant to be, meant to be. Um, it's. Look, I'm not trying to dunk on Elephant's memory. I just think yes, they you are. Yes, you are. <laughs> they, they, they struck me as just adequate, absolutely fine, really, in a way. I don't know what other bands John might have jammed with. Maybe he was just happy to jam with any band. And it just was like, oh, yeah, jamming with a band is fun. You'll do. Yeah. If, if I were in New York in 1971 and in a bar or, or in a club or something... This is probably exactly what I would be wanting to listen to as being the quintessential early 1970 New York rock experience. But when, yeah. you, when you think what else was kind of starting to happen in New York, it's maybe a little bit early for 1972, but you think what was about to happen in New York, what, yep. what, what was, you, you know, the New York Dolls and that kind of nascent punk scene and Patti Smith and the, the, the sort of the loft and that would lead into the Ramones and Talking Heads and all of that. I mean, it's it's like just arriving at the party or, you you know, you're going to a party, you go to the wrong house and end up at a different party. And it, yeah. it's a sort of retrograde. It's a, it's very Shanana. Oh, you're summoning Shanana. Why aren't they in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Shanana. Um, you're absolutely right. It's a whole hour you could talk about how John and Yoko, as we said in the first part, kind of, you know, planted their themselves in New York City, became synonymous with New York City, and then proceeded to somehow avoid every single significant musical event that happened in New York City in the 70s. And we're kind of talking from about 73 yeah. when the New York Dolls appear through to, to 1980 when you have Blondie at the top of the charts. And it's extraordinary. And you know, you can listen to a political uh, podcast to go through the politics of New York City in the 70s, where the city almost went bankrupt in 1976 and they were left hanging by the federal government. And, um, you know, how the, 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 the city kind of had a an underdog status and a, a kind of 
a sense of cool at the time. But yeah, John and Yoko, for all of their infiltration of New York City life, managed to avoid anything um, useful or significant. Maybe that sounds a bit mean, but there was so much they could have plugged into instead of hanging out with Jerry Rubin and co, where they could have actually made a, a musical difference. Yeah, this is very definitely not my scene, but I'm I'm kind of looking looking this up, uh, and it said uh, Patty Smith's poetry reading with Lenny Kay on guitar at St Mark's Church in February 1971. Uh, New York Dolls were performing in New York early 1972 uh, at the Mercer Arts Center. Mm-hmm. You know, this, it was it was this was the sort of burgeoning uh, rock scene. That this would change everything eventually, and and. It's right at the beginning, and what does John do? He chooses a sort of good yeah. old-fashioned saxophone rock and roll band, and maybe, maybe this is the point where you sort of think, okay, well, the, the, his days as an innovator, his days as are, are behind him. You know, he's he's harking back to the the music, I suppose, mm. of his late teens. But then again, you know, if Lennon wanted an avenue into Patti Smith in that universe, Dylan was. Um, was was in Patti Smith's orbit at that point in time. The other thing is, if you want to create a sort of retrograde, you know, saxophone-led, 50s-based rock music in a new idiom, well, that's what the E Street Band are about to do, you know? Well, exactly, and that's a good point. They're, I mean, they are better than the E Street Band. I'll get, yeah, you're absolutely right, Jason. <laughs> they are better. They are better than. Is that, is, sorry, is, is that is that not what, well, Elephant's is memory that not what you were saying? <laughs> oh, my God. That's fighting talk. They might have been better than 1973 E Street Band. I think once you get uh, Max Weinberg on board, you can't really fault the E Street Band, maybe. I'm not, I'm not a huge Bruce fan, but I, I, I'll defend the E Street Band. I'm only band. joshing with the, with the folks. <laughs> You're only kidding. Yes. Um, and you also have 1972 is, if you think New York music, Steely Dan. So there's lots of stuff going on in 1972. And... Uh, it, it, it's a pity, as I said, that John and Yoko managed to miss all of these potential avenues to do something, you know, kind of wild and interesting. It's odd, given how plugged in Yoko had been to the New York scene in the early 60s. Uh, you know, and I, yeah, it is, I suppose, that radical left political leaning, you know, the new, I don't know what the politics of the New York dolls were. I can mm. guess, but can guess. It, it 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 is that sort of old-fashioned, now looking back, it is that old-fashioned left-wing agitprop rock style um, that would very that would date very yeah. quickly. And their first appearance with Elephant's Memory is at the start of 1972, and they record five episodes of the Mike Douglas show, another one of these afternoon talk shows from the 31st of January to... Uh, the, between the 31st January and the 7th of February. And um, it's a show that they appear on every day and uh, they, they each do a song every day. So um, first day John sings It's So Hard, second day jo- Yoko sings Midsummer New York, third day Yoko sings Sister O oh Sister and this is the famous episode where Chuck Berry appears and John oh. and Chuck Berry do their thing with Yoko on the floor and there's a cookery demonstration and it's... Um, I'm glad we got footage of John and Chuck Berry together. I'm I'm glad... But it is not good. You, you know, it really is not good. And, you, you know, 
this is uh, they they should you know I'm a huge Yoko fan, but she should just have sat that one out. She, they should just let John <laughs> and Chuck uh, do their thing. Do their thing, yeah. Um, then day four, John does Imagine, and on day five, um, they sing Look at the Irish, and Yoko does a Japanese folk song. And this is kind of the first public appearance of John and Yoko and Elephant's Memory. They still haven't hit a recording studio yet. And something else that's worthy of maybe a full episode in and of its own right, but is worth mentioning here, is that last week in uh, in January 1972, there's a certain P. McCartney in New York City as well, um, talking to John and trying to build bridges and make amends. Yes, essentially, we touched on this at the last episode. Essentially, this is where they sort of agree, look, we should just cool everything down, stop sniping at each other in the press. And that, that sort of stops, you know, that 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 comes to an end. And there's, there's a degree of, I suppose, civility to a degree returns to their, uh, to their engagement. They both realise this is just completely counterproductive. Mm. And it's probably also worth flagging on the 30th of January 1972, the Bloody Sunday shootings happen in Derry, which yes. is something that's going to inform a John Lennon song and a Paul McCartney song that we will come back to later on. But yes. John and Paul are finishing up their business together when this event breaks on the news. And we have talked about this before back in our um Red Rose Speedway episode, which uh, everyone, uh, our, our, our Wings Wildlife Red Rose Speedway episodes, way back in the last decade. And uh, so they are in each other's orbit for that. Um, in February, they give an interview. John and Yoko give an interview to the Aquarius UK TV show. Uh, this is Tony Palmer, who's already uh, done the music documentary. So he's already um, recorded Beatle interviews. This is a really fascinating there are little clips of this uh uh up on youtube it's never thing up on on youtube but it's for what it's for the the sort of statements that they are making so so john says we are touring this year that's 1972 in the u.s and in china china um <laughs> china that's that's not gonna happen you know um all the money all the money will go to the poor and to prisoners, it's not going to happen. Mm. And then he says, for free, we're touring for free. What are you going to do about that, Mick? <laughs> because what what's happening at this stage is the Stones in June of 1972, it's already been announced, the Stones are going to be touring uh, in June and all through, all through June and July. And this is the STP tour. You know, this is the kind of... Yeah, most excessive uh, rock show to to date, and this is the Stones will be their first appearance in America since the Altamont gig. So he's already throwing out this gauntlet to 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 Mick Jagger. We're going to be touring. We're going to be doing it for free. We're going to give all the money away. It's a contradiction in touring for free and giving all the money that you make from touring <laughs> away. But but it is this kind of just he's running off at the mouth in the way that John Lennon does, you know. There is this pivot that's happening in live rock music at the time where there are huge gigs, mm. there are sound systems that can, you know, that are different to what the Beatles were playing with. You know, it is it is not even six years since Candlestick Park when John is making these statements. And, um, you know, the, the Rolling Stones tour of 1972, as you say, it is uh, well known for its excess and the associated documentaries from that time with 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 uh, with and the the names would attest to that but it is also 
I would say that's Stone's 1972 tour. It is maybe the first of these tours that is a 60s legends grand rock and roll tour that it's a it's a it's a commercial venture. It's there to make money. It's a party on the road. It's it's everything. It's 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 chaotic, but it's managed chaos. It is. And and they they are making a ton of money and it kind of sets up for future tours like the Dylan and the Band Tour in 74 and the Crosby Stills Nash Tour in 74. These kind of big money-making ventures of the bands from the previous few years. Yes, George 1974. Let's not talk George, about that. George 1974, about that. that legend one as well. <clears throat> but it is a, it, uh, the other thing, the other great tour that's happening in February 1972 is, of course, the Wings University Tour. <laughs> uh, whether that was on John's radar at all, I don't know. But there's a, there's a kind of, yeah, there, there is a, 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 an obvious question to ask John, which is, are you going on tour? And it's, it's a version of the get back, let's do it in an amphitheatre in Libya type nonsense where it's all pie in the sky. Yeah. We're going to tour China and give the money away. It's like, oh, really, you know? Yeah, and I mean, you think at this point, John, John basically at this point doesn't have much money because every, mm. everything's tied up in Apple. The receiver's been appointed. His income is 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 restricted. He's borrowing money from Klein. It's always a good idea, borrow money from <laughs> Klein. Um, so yeah, so yeah, pie in the sky is exactly exactly it, and it's 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 sort of the tail end, and John is still attached to it but it's that tail end of you know the democratic convention in 1968 and uh, you know mobilizing where sort of the love and peace era had tipped over into student action and you had the riot you know student riots in paris and grosvenor square and all that from 1968 but you know hey man that was three or four years ago but john is still moving in those circles and those those kind of left-wing um yeah agitprop rock but you could also argue that it's it it is very removed from reality, you know. Oh, it's, absolutely. It's, it's kind of the only it's the only kind of talk like somebody who's reasonably comfortably off in their status could 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 talk about. It is a gift to the satirist, yeah. You know, where where John is appearing in you know combat fatigues and and you know raised fist par salute and all the rest of it, and uh, yeah, and then and then heading back to. Uh, uh, you know, his comfortable lifestyle by, say, by 73, they'll be in the Dakota. Um, so, you know, no better time than at the end of February 72 for, one, their visas to expire, so yep. they can't really leave the country, and two, to begin sessions for some time in New York City. All the all the omens are there, hanging out with Jerry Rubin, hiring Elephant's Memory Band, no visa, and they've got, uh, they, they put the album down quite quickly in about three weeks. 20 days and uh, because in the midst of all that chaos you need a calm hand at the studio <laughs> controls so uh, Phil Spector hooray Woo-hoo. turns up again to know him is to love him as the eventual cover of the album says so they record the album in New York in three weeks it is essentially an album version of the Ballad of John and Yoko in some ways it could be argued it's certainly cut from the same cloth what it is lacking is a bit of Editing from from a Paul McCartney figure who can throw in some sugar sweet harmonies when when needs be some melodies, um, you know. So yeah, some 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 melodies would be nice. But we are we are you know we're not not fans of the album, but it certainly needs a bit of loving. It 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 does, and I think I think it's it's something you do need to see the context, and it is 
a period that I really do hope this box set comes out because I think there is so much material there, audio, visual, and there is so much context. And lower kind of sort of, you know, making fun of it. I mean, the, these are sort of sincerely held beliefs and it was a different time. Uh, and they are being incredibly uh, creative in the sense that there is a lot happening. There's a lot, you know, they're, they're simultaneously... John and Yoko are producing Elephant's Memory. Uh, they they yeah. will, they will pr- produce an album that only comes out in America on Apple. They will ultimately start working on approximately Infinite Universe with the same mm-hmm. sort of lineup of musicians. So it's an incredibly creative period. But yeah, context yeah. context is everything. No, context is everything. And I yeah, it's easy for us to kind of be a bit sort of tongue-in-cheek sarcastic about it. The reality is they have spent, when they walk into the studio on the 1st of March 1972, they have spent six months in New York City and they're going to spend three weeks documenting those six months. And in their mindset, it is, you know, we will do this, we will get on to the next thing, we will get on to the next thing. And hopefully we're giving a bit of context here to say this is how when they went into the studio in March 72, this is why they had this batch of songs to perform in this particular manner. And, you know, this isn't going to be how every John and Yoko album is for the future. Um, this is just how this one particularly happens to be. So it is, yeah, context is hugely important. So let's let's kind of walk through the album by going through the songs themselves. The first song <clears throat> we're going to call Woman Is. Woman Is. <laughs> Woman Is. Um, and, you know... Perfect choice for lead single from the album. And <laughs> irrespective of the lyrics, I, I, it's arguably not the best tune on the album. But the, the, you know, the sentiment is probably what's worth talking about as opposed to the actual words. Again, this is, this is you know, the sentiment is laudable. It's just very clumsily expressed. And both lyrically and I, I, it is one of those hugely over-the-top bombastic Phil Spector productions that he does yeah uh so well the 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 controversial title of the song is actually a a, a yoko phrase and john refers to this in the live in new york city album that comes out um much 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 later uh he said the next song is one of those many songs of ours that get banned i'm not sure how many of his songs had been banned it's something yoko Mm. said to me in 1968 it took me until 1970 to dig it and the phrase was coined by yoko in an interview with nova magazine published in yes. March 1969, they used it on the front cover. Of the magazine, yes. Yeah. Yeah. They, 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 they put that phrase on the front cover of the magazine. And Yoko explains, you know, when I got together with John, that was the biggest macho scene imaginable. That's when I made the statement, woman is. And mm. uh, the, first, the first sort of demo with sort of half song, half mumbled lyrics is, it dates from 1969, summer of 1969. Could have been a Beatles. So it could have... Could, it could have been, yeah, could have been squeezed onto the medley. Could, could have been put, put into the middle of after me, instead of mean Mr. Mustard or, yeah, it could have been, yeah, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or, or, or else, you know, when, when Paul says, uh, you know, have you, got, have you got another song that's not cold turkey? Hold on. <laughs> how about this one? Okay, let, let's do cold turkey. Um, yeah, I, I like how Yoko talks about, you know, the music scene was the biggest macho scene imaginable. Macho is one of these words that Yoko uses a lot. Yeah, yeah. And she uses it with withering disdain. And it always makes me smile whenever there's, there's a, there was some quote about John. Um, you know, when John was making bread, they were doing an interview and Yoko says, and because men are macho, he had to show me the bread <laughs> or something like this. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just find that a very funny Yoko thing. Whenever she says macho, it's just, 
she's totally slagging things off. Um, but, you know, the phrase obviously is a very, the whole point of the phrase is that it is confrontational yes. and that it makes you think. And, um, you know, they are sloganeering at this point in time. War is over if you want it and all that kind of stuff. So it makes sense as a slogan, as a bit of advertising, as a bit of attention grabbing um, to get there. And, you know, the history and protest is full of people doing provocatively awful things in order to actually say, how do you feel? You know, if you feel this way about this, why don't you feel this way about this other thing associated to it? You know, and, you know, Climate activism might be a modern day version of it. You know, why are you gluing yourself to the road? Like, just, that, I'm not gluing the road. I'm trying to draw attention to something, goddammit. Why are you throwing soup at uh, uh, Van Gogh? Why Gough's? are you throwing soup over Van Gogh's? Yes. And I was in London, but I was at the Tate. Do you? No, while you missed were, out. I missed it while they were throwing soup. Or you have an house. alibi. I have an alibi. I was at the Tate <laughs> Gallery and, uh, yeah. But, but, but an action like that is a provocative action, which is... You know, and I think the legitimate extension of that is to say, well, if you're upset at that, why aren't you upset about this other thing? That mm. is the the point that they are they are trying to make. And as we said, this this kind of comes from a you know a, a, a yokoism. There's also that there were, there there had previously been um, people who have said you know women are the slaves of the slaves. I think even um, James Connolly had said that at at one point. The Irish. Uh, I don't know what you call them, signatory of the 1916, uh, uh, Easter 1916 Proclamation of Independence. Revolutionary, Irish revolutionary. Mm. Irish revolutionary is probably the best best way to call James Connolly. So Yoko's phrasing of it is unique to Yoko. The notion that women are the slaves of the slaves is not necessarily a new notion, but obviously like a good advertising person, that's why she came up with that slogan. That's that, that's exactly it. It is, it is sloganeering and they're very... You know, John is very keen to uh, trumpet or advertise his feminist credentials uh, around this time, 1971. And but it it is it is again very opposite because you do get all of these revolutionary movements in the late 60s, but the women are in the kitchen or the women are painting the signs while the men are, you know, mm. coming up with the ideas and, and organizing and marching and all the rest of it. But the, the difficulty with slogan is it's couched in language that is not going to get any mainstream traction. It's all very well in 1968 for Nova to have put that on their front cover. But by 1971, no mainstream uh, media outlet is going to use that phrase. Now, John did not use this phrase casually. So he, he, he you know, canvasses opinion from various people saying, look, if I use this word is this all right in this context? Will this be misunderstood? Are you sort of fine? And uh, one of the people he speaks to is Dick Gregory, who I, I guess is not well known in the UK, but in America, he's he's since the early sixties, he's a sort of com- he's a comedian and, and civil rights activist. He yes. once, he once stood uh, against uh, Richard Daly as mayor of uh, uh, Ch- Chicago, etc. And he you know he speaks. To people like that and uh, in October 1972 in Jet magazine he says you know uh, yeah they consulted and it's fine and, and he's making a very powerful point. Dick Gregory is on what's known as Richard Nixon's master list you know his enemy, oh, yes. enemies of the presidency and I, I, I sort of knew there was a list and I went and looked that up John Lennon isn't on the list yeah. I bet you John was really annoyed <laughs> probably um, upset about that. That he wasn't on that on that list but um 
Yeah, so they issue this as a single uh, on the 24th of <laughs> April 1972, Apple 1848, and it peaks at number 57. Uh, it did not receive a release in the UK. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it, it, yeah, it didn't, it was supposed to be released in the UK, but they withdrew it. And, you know, for all the, the kind of the manoeuvring, uh, uh, you know, that we are using around this word in 2022, you know, the whole point of, uh, in 1972, was that it was a word that was not acceptable back then. That's yes, the whole even point then, of yeah. using it. And you know, John is trying to make a play where to say, "Well, look, is there an artistic reason for for using this word?" And you know, you could argue that there's been an artistic evolution of this word in hip hop mm. music over the last forty odd years. Um, but it, it is what it is. He he runs into this belief, though, that uh, John does, that it's going to be a massive number one, that it's going to be a huge hit. Uh, and so much so, there's um, Pete Bennett, who's a kind of a record plugger, kind of has this discussion with John about <laughs> how this is going to play out. Yeah, yes, Pete Bennett talks about this. And and, and he actually, he, he's Apple's US promotions man. He says, I told him I wouldn't promote it. So John says to me, well, you're our promotions man. You have to listen to us. We pay you. I'm the president of Apple. And I said, John, I don't care what the story is. I don't want the record. I'm not going to promote it. If I don't like it, I won't promote it. So John says, I'll promote it. Uh, I'm going to make it number one. And he said, without John knowing, I checked out all the radio stations and they said they weren't going to play it. So John called all of the stations himself, tried to do a promo job. He was so happy and he came back. You know, he'd called the program directors and they were so nice to him and they took the interviews and all the rest of it. And they played the interviews, but they wouldn't play the song. So, um, you know, it, it it stalls. And what Pete Bennett says is Apple sent 30,000 records out, 15,000 came back. Oh boy, ship platinum returned. <laughs> Shipped cardboard returned platinum, or however that phrase works. I and uh, so, so, yeah, so this 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 is the first time I suppose, since 1962, October Mm -hmm. 62, that John Lennon is looking at a flop record. Now, he can can point to the reasons to why it's Mm. a flop. You know, oh, it's just too ahead of its time or it's too confrontational and I don't mind, blah, blah, blah. But, um, you know, he does try and do his own push. It's performed live on the Dick Cavett show with a big explanation as to why I am saying the things I am saying um dick cavett is made by the network to read out a statement ahead of the show and cavett would say we did get 600 complaints but the 600 complaints were about me reading out the statement uh not about the song itself so i don't know the uk Mm. you know I, i you can you imagine that being played on top of the pops well, they said that they withdrew it, obviously, because Happy Christmas War is Over had also managed to get mm. a belated release. So there's an argument that says, oh, we don't want two singles in conflict with each other. But what we'll come on to later is the whole album has a rocky road to getting released in, in the UK anyway. Yes. It, it, it kind of falls falls down between two stools. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's perhaps too late in December 72 to release it as a, as a single. The shock is already out there because the album's already out there. Um, it does get performed live by John at the One to One concerts in August 72 at Madison Square Garden. Bit of a toe tapper for the crowd. So there are two performances of, of that concert. Uh, the afternoon performance is on the live in New York City album in 1986, which I really hope they remaster 
uh, remix, yeah. put out in full Yoko's performances, everything. And then the evening version is on the John Lennon anthology box set that came out in 1998. So, you know, that, that, that gives you an indication there are at least two, three, four, five live versions kicking around, plus demos that go back as far as uh, 19, summer of 1969. Uh, so there, you've got a whole EP on a box set. But it still doesn't forgive the fact that it's not a good tune. You can't dance to it. It's you can't whistle no. it. It's just, it's just, it's just like it's a smack over the head. It is. It's a big bombastic uh, production number. It, it's none of those things, and it goes on quite a long time. And it's not a good album opener. I think I'd have put it maybe, no. maybe at the beginning of side two. But it's not something that makes you think, "Hey, this album's going to be great." But I'll tell you what happens next is one of my fave moments on the album, track two, uh, Yoko's Sisters O oh Sisters, um, which is written by Yoko. And as we said in the first part, Sometime in New York City is actually the first John and Yoko album album. Yeah. So it's the follow-up to Imagine. And if you're expecting more Imagine No Possessions and Whistleable Tunes, track two, here we are, in your face, Yoko with Elephant's Memory doing kind of a 50s-style bop um, but uh, but that is a catchy tune. It's a great tune. I really, it's a I, great I tune. I really, I really do like this uh, this this song a lot. And uh, you know, she starts off by saying, "No chauvinist pig engineer." You know, so they're they're, yeah. they're they're kind of and John goes, you know, right on, sister. So there, there's a little kind of jokey undercutting of the message, but it's a great tune. It's 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 a kind of danceable tune. It's a whistleable tune. It's everything that the woman is isn't. <laughs> yep. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great song. It's kind of, and it does have that kind of Phil Spector kind of echoey um, bop going on to it. And as we've said in the first part, it, it's a song that has popped up in previous months when they've been on the David Frost show, when they've been doing the John Sinclair um, rally. And uh, it also popped up when they were on that run of um, Mike Douglas shows. And, uh, you know, it's just it's just a, a great tune. Also pops up in the Madison Square Garden gigs. Yes, but uh, I say it's, it's, it's not been uh, released. So, I mean, in 1980, John is giving interviews around the, the release of Double Fantasy and he's talking about this song. He clearly likes this song and he's saying it's a sort of reggae beat and he is claiming credit for being the person to introduce reggae uh, to the United States. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know, Wings Wildlife, Love is Strange, Hello. Like, surely that introduced Reggae to Who does he think he is? American audiences. Donovan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, this, there, there, there's a string arrangement, and this is my fun fact. The string arrangement is credited to Invisible Strings, and it was arranged by Ron Branchapain, and they were overdubbed yep. afterwards. He was in the Archies. Amazing. Sugar, sugar. But the Archies were just a state of mind. They were just sessioneers anyway, weren't they? He was one of them. He was one of them. And the next thing he's, so from Sugar Sugar to Sisters of Sisters. Um, next track, uh, track three, is Attica State, um, which was written about the prison riot in September 71. So we've touched upon Attica State a little bit already. Um, but the riot itself is kind of a... A, 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 a grisly horror story that maybe might be more forgotten about. This song kind of brings it back into some form of living history. But um, Attica State it was a, a prison 
And this was seen as a riot or an uprising or a massacre. Um, it's the bloodiest prison riot in US history. So depending on your, your, your sort of political standpoint, it's either called the Attica Prison Massacre, the Attica Uprising, the Attica Prison Riot. But essentially, it's in the early 70s, there, there, there was this rise in, uh, I suppose, the use of prison as a punishment and and basically there were there were demands for prisoners rights and demands for better living conditions political rights and on the 9th of September 1971 1200 out of approximately 2200 people uh in the Attica prison rioted and they took control of the prison and took 42 staff hostage there mm. were 4 days of negotiations and eventually 28 of the prisoners demands uh, w- were accepted, but the, the authorities would not agree for the removal of the superintendent or a complete amnesty from uh, prosecution for the takeover. And the governor, Nelson Rockefeller, put the state police in. Yeah. And uh, at the end of that exercise, 43 people were dead, including 10 prison officers, civilian employees, and 33 inmates. And that number 43 is something that John refers to, that he talks about the, the death. 43 poor widows. The death wives. involved in the riot, yeah. yes. It, it, he, his claim at the time was that I am sad, I'm not being pro-prisoner, I'm not being pro-prison um, you know, guard. I think all of the lives there were, uh, should not have, you know, should yeah. not have been lost in that riot. And they're, they're all worth commemorating. So, you know, the the... the the, the criticism that's thrown at him was that, oh, you're just, you know, liberal lefty, you know, playing for prisoners. And he's like, no, all of it, all of it was wrong when Rockefeller kind of pressed the button to make it happen. Well, I say, yes, I mean, he, he, he sings in the song, you know, Rockefeller pulled the trigger. So he's, he's laying the blame very, very much at, uh, at Rockefeller's door. And it, it, it's, it's an incident that has quite a, Tail, uh, sort of a tale to it that that uh, in December 1976 the then governor sort of said he was going to close the book and he did pardon all all the inmates and he he dismissed the disciplinary proceedings. Um, the families of of the prisoners killed sued and in 2000 uh, they 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 received um, eight million dollars uh, in compensation. I think it is, uh, it is it is seen as a kind of pivotal turning point in terms of prison rights and and, uh, and, and we mentioned before it was this was written or composed or initially begun on his 31st birthday back at that Everson show and uh, they recorded mm. various demos and, and uh, again it, it was sung at John Sinclair sung on the David Frost show sung at the Apollo theater and the last time he performed it was on the 20th of February 1972. Again, that Tony Palmer. And that it is a great version. It's just Lennon yes. with yeah, a yeah. kind of dobro guitar singing it. And it gives you a little bit of an insight into what that album could have sounded like. Stripped away, stripped of the Spectre production without the full Elephant's Memory band. And there, there were maybe perhaps some more intimate acoustic solo performances that's probably my favorite version of the song yeah they're, they're like they're, there are demos from november 71 and you know maybe those demos would have the the kind of the the, the key version there certainly were drawing together a picture of an alternative version of this album that has a very 
different type of feel. I think sometimes you could argue the studio kind of the studio vibes from the album make it feel a bit removed where, you know, they should have perhaps had a musical direction that was as direct as the the, the themes and the lyrics. Well, you think of, exactly, and you think you think of Dylan, it, it, you know, it's yeah. it's those early protest songs of Dylan, it's sung, they're sung with an acoustic guitar directly into a microphone and there's something very visceral and direct and, and you engage with that. Whereas when, when it's hidden behind the sort of bombast of a big band Phil Spector arrangement, I think it gets lost. So if, if, if people haven't seen that little clip, uh, that little YouTube clip, it's well worth checking out. Yep, we'll stick up a link to that. Um, the next track on the album, there's, 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 it happens once or twice on the album where this kind of a these kind of songs appear in pairs, or there's kind of a duality, or there's a, a John take and a Yoko take. So following Attica State, there's Yoko's song, Born in a, a Prison, and that has its roots going back to Yoko's Grapefoot. Grapefoot? <laughs> Yoko's Grapefruit book. Grapefruit. Grapefruit. <laughs> oh, Yoko's Grapefruit book. Yes. Was what I was trying to say. Every um, every home uh, should have a copy of Grapefruit that you can just pick up off the shelf and get some instructional vibes from time to time. I love that book. Well, even on Twitter today, Yoko's aphorisms, you know, they certainly have a, a voice and a style and they are drawn into the lyrics of, of this song. You know, they are good lyrics. Yes. The idea is it's not a sort of literally about prisoners who's saying, well, you know, we're born in a prison. We're all sort of born into this, uh, uh, this life in a prison. And uh, you can sort of consciously break out of that. So uh, yeah, the, the, the lyrics are, you know, wood becomes a flute when it's loved, reach for yourself and your battered mates. That's an odd line. Mirror becomes a razor when it's broken. Look in the mirror and see your shattered fate. Um, so it, you know, there is yeah. something there, uh, I think, and, uh, it, it's performed at Madison Square Gardens. It's not on the album, but it is on the, if you have a VHS video player, you can I, yeah. get that performance, uh, <laughs> on, on the, uh, but it's terrible mix of that album. Yeah. But it's also a good tune, Born in a Prison. It's got a nice seesaw. Tune. It is, and it's more of a sort of acoustic vibe, and that's what I'm saying. If you kind of it's stripped back a little bit, I think this album is is something that uh, you know a, a sort of a remix of this album I think would work very well in, in yeah. like a stripped back, like the double fantasy version. Well, particularly for the next track, if we're talking about this album being a you know the seeds of it going back to the ballad of John and Yoko, no more so than the track itself, New York City, which is the six months from the 31st of August to the 1st of March, John and Yoko. This is the Ballad of John and Yoko in New York City, a sequel. And it's a good tune. I mean, this should have kicked off off the album. This should have been the opening track of the album. This absolutely should have been the, the opening track of the album. And this is absolutely the kind of stuff that Elephant's Memory are, are the perfect band to play because it's, it's, it's a kind of good old fashioned kick-ass rock and roll song and the interesting thing is yeah. he, he's he's recording the first demo of this in september 10th of september 1971 when they've just moved to new york they're in the st regis um uh hotel he's still working on the lyrics he's got the tune he's got the k pasa new york which is, is such kind of hip speak you know this guy yes. from liverpool yeah. hey k pasa new york what, what what's up you know it's it's all um, he, he's just locked into that and he's sort of improvising around uh, 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 the words. And there's an early version appears on, on the anthology box set. 
Yeah, it's it's a it's a great rocking song. Again, a little bit of air in the mix in a remix w- would make it really sore. And uh, yeah, it, it's when you talk about the demos going back to September 1971, it does impact on you how. John kind of responded to the city very, very quickly. And he'd been in New York before, Uh, you know, he'd been there with Paul in 68 and, you know, he wasn't a stranger to the city. But somehow when he arrives with Yoko at this time and meets these people and meets this network, it obviously has a very large effect on him. You know, it's and, and whatever we might say about the album being, you know, somewhat dated or some of the posturing kind of being a little bit obvious, but I believe the album is completely sincere. I think that's true. I think this isn't this isn't just posturing. We 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 can I say we we can be slightly sort of sarcastic and cynical about the whole thing. But the one thing you could say about Lennon, he may have picked up and discarded causes quite quickly and quite regularly. But when he was involved, he was absolutely involved and absolutely sincere. And I think it is it's very indicative of this kind of visceral reaction to New York, and he is completely invigorated by this, and he's excited by this. And, uh, you, you know, one of the things that's interesting is just going into the album, how excited he is, and then once the album comes out and the single doesn't do well, how quickly that then starts to to, 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 to fade. Yep. But you sang about it opening the album. This is the song he opened the concert, the Madison Square Garden concert with, quite rightly so. Yes, yeah. You know, it's a fan- it would be a fantastic album opener. And yes, I think air in the mix is what is required. And, and even John himself in 1980, you know, makes the connection with the bat of John and Yoko, you know, because the song says, you know, the Jerry in the song is Jerry Rubin, the bloke with the guitar is David Peel. The album was represented as a newspaper. The song's a bit of journalese, like the ballad of John and Yoko. It just tells the story. And um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a great rockin' song. That is the end of side one. End of part one. Intermission. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. End of intermission, part two. And (laughs) we have to start with side two. We have to start somewhere. And we should probably take the next two songs together because... Side two opens with Sunday, Bloody Sunday, and then track two is The Luck of the Irish. And what we've kind of 
been pointing out so far is that the luck of the Irish is already a song that is in the mix at the end of 71. They're playing it at TV shows and concerts. Um, and, you know, without going into a huge amount of geopolitical discussion, but the 1971-72 period in Northern Ireland politics is perhaps the most awful part of what are colloquially known as the Troubles. There are many books about yes. 1972 itself. And while John and Yoko are taking all of this in and writing a song called The Luck of the Irish, we have the Bloody Sunday um, atrocity on the 30th of January 1972. So it makes sense, again, this duality in the album that these songs get paired together. Yes, and it is interesting that The Luck of the Irish already exists. You know, so yeah. so so sort of issues in Ireland, issues in Northern Ireland already sort of on his radar. But yeah, this is this is a direct response. Uh, so there were uh, 13, 14 people ultimately died, uh, were shot by the, the British Army, five of whom were shot in the back. It is still a controversial issue. There are still inquiries... Uh, you yes. know, and litigation still going on. Yeah, for, for, for listeners around the world outside of the UK and Ireland, it is it is extraordinary how potent this event still is. And even, you know, there, there, it, it, is, it is a topic in the current parliament in the UK about the rights of the people involved in this issue and the, the, the Conservative government's position on these kind of things. It is it is a hot-button topic to this day. Yes, because the big the big issue at the minute is uh, you, you, the, the, there was an initial inquiry, which I think everyone regarded uh, and accepts was just a whitewash. Then there was a further inquiry, and there were hundreds of millions of pounds spent on that inquiry. And then you had one side saying, this is a complete waste of money. The other saying, well, this is... You know, absolutely essential. Uh, you know, very much the blame is focused on the government and the British Army as a result of that inquiry. But there is now this idea: well, we, we have to prosecute the soldiers who were involved. And then the contrary view is: no, everybody gets an amnesty, and it's back and forward, back and forward. But it is such a pivotal moment in the troubles, and such as you say, it is still such a controversial event. Uh, you know, almost, I'm almost at the point of saying you could not write this song today, but you could have written the song in 1972 as a direct and immediate response because it was just a black and white mm. issue. Now it has become, I don't want to say toxic, but it has become so, you, you can't talk about it. You can't, you, you, you cannot have a conversation about it without <laughs> being drawn in. And everything now in this world is, is black and white. It's a binary uh, option. You know, no, a hundred percent. Like even now, I sense you and me are choosing our words very wisely carefully, on yes. an event that that happened fifty years ago. And you know, if 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 I'm thinking of our North American viewers, you know, if you're trying to think of something comparable in terms of popular culture, maybe Crosby, Stills and Nash's and Young's Ohio, yes, yes. because Bloody Sunday on the 13th of January '72, as you say, there was there was it was an, uh, an unarmed civil rights protester group were protesting for civil rights. Civil rights in this instance was Catholic civil rights in a in in Northern Ireland, and there was uh, the British Army fired on, shot twenty six people and fourteen died, and um, as you say, it's it is a, a controversial topic that is still being played out in the political sphere of the UK and Ireland. Again, choosing my words wisely, but it it, it is it is a 
you know, when they were already tuned in to issues at that time through the luck of the Irish, Sunday Bloody Sunday is written to be, in case we haven't made our point clear, we are going to write more directly about this issue. Yes. Lennon says, you know, most other people express themselves by shouting or playing football at the weekend, but me, I'm in New York, I hear about 13 people, there were, that stage there were 13 people had died, uh, and I react immediately, and being what I am, I react in four to the bar with a guitar break in the middle. Paul reacts similarly, you know, so he, yeah. he has a reaction to that, and, and he his response is to write what is perhaps the politest uh, protest song <laughs> ever written and and it's it's fascinating to compare the two the two songs and the nature of the response because john is just absolutely out and out unequivocal in his reaction to this paul is much more i don't want to say nuanced because it isn't nuanced it isn't sophisticated but he's not unequivocal he just doesn't want to call britain out too harshly it's it's worth just paying uh, you know close attention to the timeline. So obviously the the song we're talking about is Wings's first single, "Give Ireland Back to the Irish." You know the 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 events happen on the thirtieth of January. Paul has "Give Ireland Back to the Irish" recorded forty eight hours later yeah. by the by the evening of the first of February. Paul has it recorded and he has it released um, on the twenty fifth of February. So before John even sets foot in the studio to record sometime in New York City, even, you know, though he obviously has Sunday Bloody Sunday written, Paul has already written his response. And it is a, a fascinating, again, you talked earlier on about the, the similarities in John and Paul's lives, the bits that were the same on paper, but different in reality. Here you have two partners who are approaching this totally separately. And you kind of can't help but think, good Lord, if, if you know, if because Paul was in New York at the end of uh, January. If he'd been there for an extra few days, uh, like like a double A sided single with yes. a John song on one yes. side and a Paul song on the other, raising money for charity. If it was Sunday Bloody Sunday and give Iron back to the Irish, like that, that's an extraordinary notion. I know, I know, it's a bit of a parallel history thing that we try and avoid, but it is amazing that this event provoked very specific songs about a very specific, like unequivocal songs, yes, so to speak. Yes, yes, um, that, that, that I think you have to look at them in tandem with each other. Yes, uh, uh, absolutely. I think the response is the same, the expression is different. And uh, it, is, it is fascinating to think that, you know, if they had still been, Paul had still been in, in New York, well, maybe perhaps they'd have written a song together, you know. Um, mm. And again, we, do, we, don't get a, we don't get a song from George, we don't get George and Ringo penning something at this stage, but this is this is Paul and Paul, who is not political uh, in, in any sense at this stage. This is what sort of galvanizes him in into this response. The the money from this song and Luck of the Irish are donated to the civil rights movement in Ireland uh, and in New York. And if you know if you were to talk to people in Northern Ireland about the civil rights movement, again, even that's a contentious issue. Because the idea is, you know, is, is the civil rights movement part of the IRA? Is the IRA, you know, legitimate? Uh, do they have legitimate aims? You can't, you can't discuss these things. But John, at this point, you know, he, to an extent, he recognises the difficulty of the contradiction. And he's moved from, you know, you can count me in, you can count me out in revolution to part of the people. If you want a revolution, we'd better get it on right away. And again, that's a comfortable, uh, you know, rich rock star saying that. But he... 
when, when it comes to Ireland, and there's a quote from him in September 1971, which is four months before the, the Bloody Sunday incident, and he said, I understand why they're doing it, and if it's a choice between the IRA or the British Army, I'm with the IRA. That's a, that's a quote that came back to haunt him. But if it's a choice between violence and non-violence, I'm with non-violence. So it's a very delicate line. So he, that's one of those quotes that just gets taken out of context. Yeah. He then says, and I, think, I actually think this is funny, he concludes that by saying, uh, although I condemn violence, if two people are fighting, I'm probably going to be on one side or the other, even though I'm against violence. And that's, I think that's like saying, well, I'm a vegetarian, just between meals. <laughs> well, it's, you know, the look of the Irish, because we're looking at these two together, you know, before he left for the US, John had put the shoe leather in. He had been on a, a march in London in August 71, um, uh, you know, which was a, a, a protest march, um, you know, uh, where he gives that interview, in quote, in response to it. And, and, and the back end of that, he writes the look of the Irish around about November 71 in response to these issues. So, but, but the, this is kind of a powder keg that is building up to the Sunday, Bloody Sunday uh, kind of event. I, 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 absolutely. And I mean, that protest march in London was, was literally the last thing they did before they got on the plane. Um, yeah. You know, they just marched, uh, uh, kept marching all the way, all the way to the airport, all, all the way to Heathrow. <laughs> what, yes. I, what I would say, just going back to Sunday Bloody Sunday, I think that song is fantastic. I think that is a brilliant song. Objectively, I think it does exactly. It fulfills the brief because you've got this absolutely driving production, this driving song. The lyrics are, as I scathing, visceral. There is no. Uh, ambiguity about the message, and it works perfectly. Then you come on to The Luck of the Irish, which I think, for my money, is probably the worst song on the album. In history. In history, in the whole of history. Uh, yeah. Shockingly yeah. bad song. I mean, even, you know, I yeah. speak as someone that, you know, Irish living in Ireland, even without that, the, the kind of, uh, it's awful. It's terrible. It is Awful and shamrocks and rainbows and, and all that kind stones of, and yes, it might as well leprechauns. Yeah, leprechauns get a mention. Leprechauns get a look in. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, it would have been better if they had ditched "Look of the Irish" and just used "Sunday Bloody Sunday" yeah. to 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 make their point. It was considered as a potential lead-off single. Well, unless unless kind of um, you know kinder eyes thought, well, it, it sort of has a Mull of Kintyre vibe, doesn't oh. it? You know, it's sort oh. of and the, you know, uh, again, die kind of dare, you know, nice air to it. It is such well, even that even that line. If you had the luck of the Irish, you'd wish you were English instead. I mean, that that is so ambiguous and open to misinterpretation. And I, I I don't know if any Irish person has ever wished they were English, but anyway, let's not go there. And then and then you get Yoko's. Sorry, Yoko, but you get the unbelievably twee, which is just like an Irish tourist <laughs> uh, uh, board. You know, the mountains of Bourne and the Blarney Stone and Galway Bay and blah, blah, blah. It's Anyway, <laughs> yes. have, have, we, have we said enough that it's bad? We don't like I think, it? I think, I th- I think we have said enough about those two songs. But yeah, it was, it was considered as a single with Attic Estate and <sighs> I don't know what the... I mean, like New York City should have been the single. What, like, I don't know. Like, that's just... Obvious to me, anyway. In retrospect, um, yes. So, s- still, s- 
still at an, uh, topics we are tiptoeing around 50 years later, Sunday, Bloody Sunday and the luck of the Irish. So there's there's potency there. Next track is John Sinclair. Now, we've kind of covered the story of John Sinclair in our first part. He, they gave him 10 for 2 and, and the song was written for his um, Freedom Rally in December 1971 and he gets released three, <laughs> three days later. So why they bothered to record yes. it? That's well, just a bit of a good jam, isn't it? A good tune. I think it's just you know he could have repurposed this, or he could have changed the lyrics, or but yeah, this is this is exactly what you don't do. You do not put out a protest song after the subject or the object of the protest has ceased to exist. You know he's out, yes. so there is no reason to put this song on the album. You know. <laughs> It does make me think of Bob Dylan's song Hurricane, you know, it it, it kind of has a precedent for that. I know I know John Sinclair isn't the first um protest song or the first song to protest a you know miscarriage of justice. Um but it it in terms of the vibe of 70s rock um it it does present this notion of uh, you know it's slightly different to the reportage of Attica State this thing happened or Sunday bloody Sunday this thing happened whereas John Sinclair is saying I'm going to shine a light on this yes, guy yes. and we're going to get something done. And, you know, it did do its job. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad it's on the album. Yes, yes. I mean, it's interesting to have. I still would send people back to the Tony Palmer uh, documentary version. But it's, it's Hurricane is a good example. And Dylan had a song called George Jackson. Oh, yes, that, yes, that, yes. That, around the same came, time. Around the same time. And, I mean, you, you know, it has kind of little echoes uh, through through this album as well, but yeah, you you, you sort of focus. But you know, Dylan's not going to sing Hurricane or George Jackson in concert now. You know, you know, once once the the uh, once it's done, it's done. Once it's done, it's done. Yeah, yeah. And Hurricane also has that word in it, um, so you're not going to hear it on daytime radio. Um, the next track up is Angela. Angela being Angela Davis, um, Black Panther supporter who was tried and eventually acquitted for suspected involvement in uh, the murder of Judge Harold Haley in California. And uh, Angela Davis is still someone who is a provocative figure. Yes. Uh, he, he said... <laughs> Provocatively. Um, again, choosing, <laughs> choosing words wisely. She is. I mean, she, she, is still, she is still around. She is still speaking. She's very prominent in the Black Lives Matters. Uh, yep. uh, Black Lives Matter movement. Um, so yeah, and again, a, a, a bit of a cause celebrate back in in the early seventies. I I like this song a lot. I like the melody. I think some of the lyrics are unbelievably twee. Yeah, but this is a song that benefited hugely from that remix in um, on the Gimme Some Truth box, and I think it's interesting that this is the song they chose for that box set. Yes. Because Black Lives Matter was a huge issue around that time, and this is a song that that sort of focused on that. Other than that, you know, the we, we couldn't have the Woman Is song, uh, obviously, on the box set. Mm-hmm. But, but this, this was a, a nice representation. It didn't begin life that way. Okay. So originally the song was called J.J., Angela, JJ, I'm, JJ, right. uh, and I'm just I'm just reading a third person song about a woman who checks notes couldn't get laid at all. Unquote. That's a lyric, <laughs> right? And if you want to seek out, there is a demo uh, recorded in September 1971 at the St Regis Hotel, and uh, then it there are lots of other 
versions and it becomes called People. And then it, it's a sort of, you know, peace and understanding people. And then it becomes about uh, Ang- Angela Davis. And the connection here is Jonathan Jackson, a 17-year-old high school student, basically took over control of a courtroom in Marin County, California. And uh, his brother was George Jackson, about whom Dylan uh, then Dylan writes, writes yeah. the song. But anyway, things go horribly Wrong. He arms the black defendants, takes the judge, the prosecutor, and three female jurors as hostages. Uh, there is a, a shootout, basically. One of the defendants shot at the police. The police returned fire. The judge and the three black defendants were killed. And uh, it turned out that Angela Davis had purchased several of the guns and had been corresponding with one of the inmates involved. So she's actually charged with first-degree murder. She's not there. She, she's not, not yeah. participating. She goes on the run. And then uh, she's captured uh, in by the FBI in October 1970. And uh, June the 4th, 1972, the all-white jury said not guilty. So that was... Yes. You know, so... So, while the song is being recorded, she is still incarcerated and this trial is is taking place so this song is very much it's very much of the moment of the moment because you you know uh, Richard Nixon congratulates the FBI on the capture of the dangerous terrorist Angela Davis that's like he you know Nixon has form here he comments on the Manson trial and almost almost, there's almost a mistrial because the president is weighing in on uh, uh, with his opinions and um so yeah, it's it's. I think it's a it's a really nice melody. If you can ignore mm-hmm. its uh, sexist uh, origins, and um, <laughs> but but yeah, I I I think this is a a really a really good song, um, but not as good as uh, the song the Stones wrote about Angela. Now, the this is the song "Sweet Black Angel," which is on Exile on Main Street, and already that title is giving me the vapors. Um, with the fetishization of um, uh, uh, black culture. But anyway, um, what do they sing on the album? Uh, do you want me to read the whole thing? Oh, go on. Yeah, but that will, yeah, I'm not going to do my Mick Jagger uh, impression. Please don't. Um, well, the gal in danger, the gal in chains, but she keeps on pushing. Would you do the same? She counting up the minutes. She counting up the days. She's a sweet black angel, not a gun-toting teacher, not a red-loving schoolmarm. Ain't someone going to free her, free the sweet black slave? Yeah, I can see what you mean. Oh, Jesus. Oh, yo. But it's a great, but it, but it, is, it is a very good song. Oh, what, their heart's in the right their place? Their heart's in the right place. <laughs> their heart's in the right place. Yes. Mm, yes. Um, yeah, and Angela Davis, as, as you said, still uh, fighting the good fight today. Yeah. Um, and uh, a very, very, very interesting voice in the current debate. Uh, this leads us to the last track on the album, which is a Yoko one, the longest track on the album called We're All Water. And again, this is, um, you know, some of her old lyrics being refashioned into a, you know, her old poetry lyrics being refashioned into a, a song. Again, another kind of great Yoko tune and, and bop. And I love this song, yeah. I love this song too. And what we kind of need to keep in mind is that Yoko is going to spin off from this project and release two fantastic albums. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, Approximately Infinite Universe and... Um, 
Feeling the Space, which is her kind of Feeling the Space, which is a great album, uh, kind of feminist. Uh, Feeling the Space is great. Approximately Infinite Universe, they're they're probably her two best records. I I they're they're, they're my two favorites anyway. And so we're all water is how the album closes. And uh, the original poem, "You are water, I'm water, we're all water in different containers." That's why it's so easy to meet. Someday we'll evaporate together, but even after the water's gone, we'll probably point out to the containers and say. That's me there, that one. We're container minders. Thanks, Yoko. Cool. Um, Heavy stuff. <laughs> she, she reworks this. And it's uh, just, an, again, it's another one of those songs, one of those performances, one of those productions that is perfect. And the Elephant's Memory Band, ideal for this. And of course, she just goes full Yoko at the end of the track. Um, brilliant. And it's a, um, Yeah, no, it's a, gr- a great track. Great way to end the album. And she, she adds references to Richard Nixon, Jerry Rubin, Charles Manson, uh, you know, the the LP cover, uh, we talked about this, not really talked a lot about the cover, but it's mocked up like a a, a newspaper uh, heading, mm. sort of slogans, uh, you know, Phil Spector, to know him is to love him, a riff on the New York Times, all the news that's fit to print, etc. All I, I think we didn't mention that the Everson Museum program is done up in that's the same right. way. So from the year before, so there's a sort of foreshadowing in, in the design of that. But uh, one of the, the, the pictures that illustrates this uh, is um, Richard Nixon and uh, Mao Zedong jiving naked. Yes, very much of the time. But that's the whole point of the album, you know, that we've moved on six years on from Aha, Mr. Wilson, Aha, Mr. Heath. Um, this is the, the kind of the national state of world politics. And... Um, yeah, this this was a, a mocked up image that they have, and John is still talking about it in in nineteen eighty that you know they were getting pressure for having these uh, you know that retailers stuck a sticker on it, and John said you know um, this is the kind of pressure Yoko and I were getting not only on a personal level and a public level and the court case and the effing government and this that and the other, but every time we tried to express ourselves, they would ban it, cover it up, would censor it. You know now part of the point probably the alternate to that saying well you're you're being provocative, you know what you're doing, but yes. You know. At the same time, he's saying, you know, well, you know, yeah, we are being provocative and that's just the way it is. Yeah, you, um, you, you, you want to get banned. That, yeah. That's part of the uh, point, you know. Uh, and We're All Water does get performed uh, on the Dick Cavett show and it does get performed uh, in August 1972 uh, at the one to one gigs. Um, now. Depending on which version of Sometime in New York City you have, either the album ends there, and that's that, and you go off and have a cup of tea, and certainly some of the reissues, uh, particularly the digital reissues, have ended the album there. There is a second live album that comes with the album itself. Live Jam. Live Jam, which is comprised of 1969 recordings um, made in London, uh, and then also of a second set of recordings made with Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention um, in New York City. Um, you could spend a whole episode talking about those recordings. You could. So maybe we should just maybe we should just do that. I think we should probably should. I think we probably, <laughs> we probably should. should do that. So, um, so that is your bonus album. But um, so they record this album. Very quickly, in in three weeks' time, they also record an Elephant's Memory album, and and John and Yoko pop up on the Elephant's Memory yeah. album itself. Have you heard that album? No, I've never heard. No, I've never heard that album. I'm I'm, I'm assuming you have because you're 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 yeah. You'll you'll not be surprised. You're in it for know. real. You'll not be surprised to know I have I have <laughs> I have several copies of that um, 
Yes, well, you have to hear the eight track version. Uh, well, you know, it only came out in America. <laughs> Interestingly, it was not. So did David Peel's Apple album only come out in America? But I'm I I only look at UK Apple releases. But I made an exception, and boy, was I sorry I'd made an exception. Yeah, it's not great. It's it's more of the same style, but with ter- even more terrible lyrics, and uh, yeah, not good. It has. Not aged well. That's all I'll say. It has not aged yeah. well. Um, so the album is due to come out on the 12th of June in the US. And so once the album is in the can, it's at this point that they go on to Dick Cavett and do the version of Woman Is that we mentioned earlier on. And Dick Cavett has to make the apology. And that gets broadcast on the 11th of May, 1972. So you know, having done all this stuff in December and January, which is kind of low-key, when they re-emerge in May 72, the album's in the can, they're presenting the single, they're performing with the band, uh, Elephant's Memory. It's not unimaginable that, you know, they have a band in tow. They should have hit the road, and they might have been in a different place if they'd hit the road, but they they didn't. Um, the single itself comes out on the 24th of April, and they're still doing peace rallies and things. Yes, yeah, so they're, they're, they're still doing what they did before they went into the studio. So there's a benefit concert at Washington Square on the 13th of May. So they're still involved in these these activities. And then they start uh, rehearsals for a concert. And various members of the Elephant's Memory Band have said, yeah, we were going to go on the road. Now, I don't know that that was conceivably that could ever have gone to China. Only Nixon can go yes. to China. <laughs> but yeah, so, so they're sticking with the lineup and the band that made... Uh, the album, and they start rehearsing for this benefit concert uh, one-to-one. The rehearsals start on the 18th of August and 31st of August, two sets, uh, Shades of Bangladesh uh, at Madison Square Garden. It is Shades of Bangladesh, and, you know, when Sometime New York City does come out, it, as I said, it's the 12th of June, 72, it does not come out in the UK um, until much later, it gets delayed about three to four months and comes out in, in September time. So at that point, you know, you could argue that this whole flurry of activity is over for them in, in, in terms of kind of acting in New York. When the album comes out, amazingly, it, it charts shockingly low. <laughs> yes, it, it does very badly. It does very badly. and um, Like, it, it, it's kind of hard to believe how badly it does, particularly coming off the back of um, Imagine. So, um, uh, it charts in the US at number 48. Good Lord. Like, that is... How can you explain something like that, you know? Like, the, the Imagine had managed to get to number one in America, and number one in the UK, the Imagine album. So that's within the space of a year. The follow-up album to Imagine goes to number 48 in the charts, which it is kind of unfathomable. Like I could understand it getting into the top 10 and disappearing the week a week after, but that is a very low chart position. I think by that point, you know, we, we tend to think of Lennon as being slightly reclusive because, you know, in the latter years and all the rest, but he was constantly on the television, uh, in the New York, yeah. certainly in the New York area. People had heard these songs. People knew what these songs were like. You know, four, five, six of these songs had all received public airings on, on syndicated talk shows, etc., etc. The public didn't like it. The public didn't want it. Um, yep. You know, it was overtly political. So let's say half of your audience uh, on the political spectrum are going to be ruled out of buying this. 
it was not something that I'm guessing anybody over 40 is going to lock into. You know, imagine nice, sweet, sugar-coated Lennon says himself, this is completely the antithesis of this. And it's been previewed. So already he's sort of locking out various sections of, of his audience. Plus, of course, George was king of the world and George was the number one Beatle <laughs> in 1972 and Ringo was the second Beatle in 1972. And But it is a catastrophic um, fall from grace, I suppose. And uh, I can now do 45 minutes on the ramifications of this uh, on the royalties <laughs> and the uh, Alan Klein's deal with capital. Because if you remember... Let's let's just uh, save that for another day. I know, I know, I can see that look in your eye. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, the follow-up album that comes out is Mind Games, and that does put Lennon back into the the top ten. But it is it is amazing that the public got this sense off the album and stayed away in droves. You know that it was signposted so clearly, but. It does all build up, as you say, to, you know, the album is out, Elephant's Memory are there, he's based in New York. This one-to-one show kind of is the first anniversary of their arrival in New York City, and it kind of is the bookend to those New York 12 months. And it's, you know, August 71 was Bangladesh, and here we are, August 72, John is headlining a charity concert. It's a very different beast, different vibe, doesn't sell out. Like, what is, how... What is this concert for? Well, I will now read from the New York Times on the 17th of August, 1972. This is, a, this is so not politically correct. Well, well, there's another one of these words, Jason, <laughs> coming up. Yes. Can, can, we, can we say it once? I think we should read the headline once, yes. Okay, and I, I judge from your silence you're going to make me read the headline. I, I, I'll read it if you want. No, 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 no. Uh, no so the headline on the New York Times on the 17th of August, 1972, Lennon concert slated August 30th in all-day fate to aid retarded. Mm. And uh, yes, that is a kind of a, another word that's been um, r- retired somewhat. Yeah, this, this, this it, article it, it, is full of words that you can't... But essentially, essentially... Um, on the 30th of August, starting with a variety of programmes in Central Park at 10 in the morning and ending with a benefit rock concert in Madison Square Gardens featuring John Lennon. The festival is being organised by Geraldo or Geraldo Rivera. Geraldo. Geraldo. Um, to raise funds to help and personalise care for children who were in a, uh, I suppose, state-run institution. And um, mm. essentially there was going to be a day of folk singing, circus performances, social dancing and parades. Yoko was decorating part of Central Park. And then the Lennons will be joined in the evening concert by Roberta Flack. Hooray. Stevie Wonder. Hooray. Shanana. <laughs> Shanana. <laughs> God, they're, every, they're oh. everywhere. They're, they're, seriously. Would, would, it, would it have been better if you just got Shanana in to record... Uh, <laughs> to be his backing band. Uh, yeah. Have you ever seen their television show, Shannon? Oh no, please, no, no. Okay, never mind. It's on YouTube. It'll okay. it'll rot your brain. And uh, the Isley Brothers. I would like to have heard uh, mm. John Lennon record sometime in New York City with the Isley Brothers, uh, all of whom are yes. donating their services. So, uh, you know, this is a charity uh, concert that Geraldo has has put together, and the Times actually says. 
The Rock Benefit recalls last year's concert for Bangladesh in Madison Square Garden in which George Harrison and Ringo Starr, two other former Beatles, performed. No pressure. No pressure. The the thing about this is, you know, okay, so it's 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 a charity um you know, it's being raised for this Willowbrook Institution uh charity for, you know, um uh, children with developmental issues and it's not a it's actually the first non-controversial charity they've stuck their name to. It's not like yes. we're doing this we're doing this one-off gig for <laughs> you know the whatever kind of rights issue they might be playing at, you know. Yes. Yes. And I mean it it, it it's hard to escape the feeling that John felt this was uh something that people could get behind um that this was non-controversial you know the album by this stage is out and stalling the single has stalled obviously there's the bangladesh echo of that he is his career is stalling george's career is forging ahead ringo's career is forging ahead one of the interesting things is um in 1986 yoko talked about this concert And what she says is the Vietnam War protest was at its height. The feminist movement was in a stage of awakening. Our concert material was mainly based on the album we released that uh, spring. The concert was filled with love of brotherhood and sisterhood. We passed out tambourines to the audience, true to our slogan, you are the plastic owner band. Everybody joined in and staged at the end. We sang Give Peace a Chance. Uh, The concert was our effort in grassroots politics. It embodied what John and I strongly believed in, rock for peace and enlightenment. No mention of Willowbrook or the children. No mention of the fact that it's a children's charity gig. It's uh, a bit rich, that. The set list itself, I mean, if, if there was to have been, if this was to be the opening night of a tour that would have gone across North America until Christmas... Pretty reasonable set list, just to rattle through it. Power to the people, New York City, It's So Hard, Move On Fast, Woman Is, Sisters of Sisters, Well, 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 Born in a Prison, Instant Karma, Mother, We're All Water, Come Together, Crowd Goes Nuts, Imagine, uh, Harake, Cold Turkey, Don't Worry, Kyoko, Hound Dog and Give Peace a Chance. Um, if anything, the argument was that they weren't really road veterans when they take the stage, John and Yoko and no. uh, you know, the Plastic Ono Elephant's Memory band. It's a bit... You know the the shows are somewhat undersold, um, but it's uh, it's it's you know it's still the closest you'll get to a proper John gig, really. It it is the only sort of full set that you'll get on paper. It's a good set list. Yeah, you, you know that would be a good rock and night out. But the band do sound under rehearse, and this is a band that has just recorded all of these songs in the studio, and yeah. and they spent a couple of weeks doing during rehearsals, but they sound under-rehearsed. What I would say, they also have Jim Keltner, interestingly, is is on, yeah. on, on the stage uh, for this. It does not sell out. And you think, again, John Lennon in New York, Madison Square Gardens, does not sell out. Uh, very strange. Lennon buys $60,000 worth of tickets himself and, and hands them out. Uh, it, you know, it, it raises money, it raises awareness, but as a musical event, uh, I, I think it falls very far short of what you would expect. And it certainly compares very unfavorably with Bangladesh. And he just can't escape the Bangladesh comparison. There is a review on the 31st of August, uh, hot off the presses, 
Don Hackman says, Visions of the now classic concert for Bangladesh danced in the heads of the less-than-capacity audiences at the one-to-one concerts in Madison Square Garden yesterday afternoon and evening, but the realities of the two sluggish, sometimes good, sometimes bad programmes soon drove away any expectations of a truly memorable event. Yes, uh, he does also say, you know, you kind of forget that there's a there's a, 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 a support bill. Um, you know, Shanana, as delightful as ever, <laughs> stomped and sung their way through a maze of 50 sits. But I also like how Stevie Wonder, um, he brought with him music and the audience life. However, he has a cracking new song called Superstition. <laughs> I do, I, I, I always love it when a new song drops. Imagine, and, uh, Im- imagine that if you, if, if you were in the audience and heard him, you did not know this song. And I mean, that would have been fantastic. This review does say, I think totally fair, Yoko's extraordinary vocal improvisations may be an acquired taste, but they open an area of sound for its own sake that widens the colour spectrum for what could be an important new rock ensemble. I think that's a phenomenally open-minded and fair thing to say in a review where they could have um, just kind of uh, ignored it. But yeah, not a great review. Friend of the show, Harold Lapidus, has been to the gig. We should... um, pick his brains we should, he was we in the should, audience we for that. should he, he, he was there yeah. he was there yeah he he was there and uh the point is though there's been talk for a number of years that there's a a, a remixed redone version of these one-to-one shows on a shelf somewhere in lennon ono towers waiting for a reissue and whether that's part of a sometime in new york city reissue or whether it's a standalone you know live issue with rehearsals and afternoon show, evening show, and then the remastered 4K film with surround sound. That's how I'd do it. Yeah, it's a box set in itself because I, I, I've, yeah. I've got CD, a CD bootleg of, of the rehearsals and they are just kind of goofing around on old rock standards. And uh, what, what, I, what I would say is uh, it, the closing paragraph of that review, it said, uh, who was there at the end? Shanana, Stevie Wonder... Roberta Flack, the cast of Godspell, it's very of its time, Abby Hoffman, and I think he's the new Scylla Black, Alan Ginsberg. Alan Ginsberg. <laughs> to sing, uh, to sing give, give Peace a Chance. So uh, we have to ask uh, Harold if he noticed Alan Ginsberg there. But yes. Anyway, um, it, it, it raised one and a half million dollars. So. And isn't that all that matters? Um, you know, and... Uh, yeah, maybe it will get, you know, as I said, it's apparently all been done and uh, ready to release, but we just haven't seen it yet. But I think the most important effect of this one-to-one concert was that um, Paul named his 2016 tour the one-to-one tour, which okay. is... In, in tribute. In, in tribute. In tribute. That's obviously exactly where his head was at. Um, you know, the the... The, the concert's on the 30th of August and the, the reviews and the aftermath's on the 31st of August and it is a year to the day exactly that they arrived in New York City. They got an awful lot done and if they hadn't been in New York City, that 12 months would have been a completely different period in time, really. Yes, yes. It is an absolute continuation of the Ballad of John and Yoko, which is sort of how you introduced the first episode. This is this is them documenting what's happening in their own lives with with. New York City and what is happening around them and the causes they are involved with and the you know uh, people get you know Jerry Rubin gets name checked David Peel gets name checked unfortunately Alan Ginsberg does not get name checked but you know uh, and yes it, it, it's that sort of diarization, of, of of their lives and the causes they're interested in and then suddenly it just stops 
it does all peter out for numerous reasons, I guess. Yeah. One is the album flops. Two is the immigration situation. Uh, three is the nature of John and Yoko's relationship starts to change as 1972 becomes 1973. Nixon gets re-elected. All of that comes comes to bear. And I think, uh, again, but the, Gary, uh, Gary von Sayak, Skyhawk, I, I need to learn how to pronounce that. He, he he is very adamant that they'd been rehearsing and they were geared up for a tour. And he he says, you know, it was the immigration issue. But I think because all of that is going on in the background and Lenin is fighting the immigration services, the FBI are out to get him. He is becoming increasingly paranoid. He's being convinced by his lawyers, look, as long there is political opposition to you staying in the country, as long as you are identifying and hanging around with Abby Hoffman, with Jerry Rubin, people like that, this is impacting on your ability to stay in the country. And back to the original purpose of being in the country was to try and find Yoko's daughter. And that has sort of been in the background uh, uh, hanging over all of this. So there's a sort of series of circumstances all kind of building up to the point where he's got to make a decision. Does he stick with it, what he's doing with the sound, with the politics, with the, the course of his life? Or does he retreat back into something more like Imagine? Which I would say Mind Games is really sort of Imagine light. Mm. But I think the biggest factor is probably the commercial failure of the album and the single. And it impacts him, it impacts the Beatles, because Klein has to spend a long time arguing with Capitol to say this record should not count. This is a John and Yoko Mm -hmm. album, it's not a John solo album and you know, you won't let me talk for 45 minutes about the contracts, but this becomes a huge issue. And um, I, I think it's suddenly the commercial. He's, he's not had any commercial failure since the first single. Yeah. Yeah. And this is it. You know? Um, and, and you know, at the time, rock and roll careers, you're only as big as your last record. You know, there isn't, yeah. you can't release a flop album. Um, there's one interesting postscript to this first year in New York City on September the 4th, 1972. Jerry Lewis is having his annual Labor Day muscular dystrophy telethon, which if you're a North American listener, I'm assuming is just part of life for many, many years that Jerry Lewis would do this um, very large telethon. And it's being broadcast from the Americana Hotel on 7th Avenue in New York City. And then Jerry Lewis makes one of his fantastically unctuous introductions uh, as he introduces two of the most unusual people in all the world, and I don't mean just in the world of entertainment. They fit no patterns, meet no standards except the standard of excellence. Ladies and gentlemen, John Lennon and Yoko. And finally, we get the Jerry Lewis, John and Yoko uh, trio that we've longed for for a long time. Yes, yes, absolutely. It, together again, they could have gone on to conquer the world. <laughs> Who needs Dean Martin? John, Yoko and Jerry in Vegas at the Sands, live at the Sands. That would have been... Yes. <laughs> um, and they, John and Yoko come out and with Elephant's Memory, they do Imagine, Yoko's Now or Never, and then they do a sing-along version of Give Peace a Chance. And to be honest, it's kind of... Um, it's all a bit sort of... Uh, a bit. <laughs> my, my thoughts was it's a bit Roger Waters, where it's the legend is more important than the actual art itself at this point, and it does need a bit of a tearing down and a rethink. You could argue. It, yes, I think I I I think so, and, and that is probably you, you know a line is drawn at at that point, 
and we we kind of tip into the silly season. The following month, where rumors are circulating of a concert with Wings, John and Yoko, George, ever, you know, the, the, Yoko is recording approximately Infinite Universe, which is an insanely good album and much much mm. more interesting um, than Sometime in New York City. January nineteen seventy three, Northern seventy three, Northern song sues John for a million pounds. This is Lou Grade and the, the publishing. John then is heading off to uh, L.A. recording the Ringo album. John, George and yep. Ringo meet in L.A. And my question is, is that the first time any of the other Beatles have seen John without Yoko since March 1968? And the answer's possibly yes. Answer's on a postcard. Yeah, answer's on a postcard. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and then as the 31st of March 1973. Big day, client contract ends. It's a big day. It's a big day in Beatleland. But that's all ahead of them. That's all ahead of the band. And uh, May, Yoko was giving solo concerts with the Elephant's Memory Band. And uh, Melody Maker say she can write songs about things that matter. John Lennon is married to her, you know. Remember him? <laughs> yeah, Yoko's on a roll at that She point. absolutely is on a roll. Weirdly, Weather Report are the opening act at that concert. I mean, Weather Report are opening for uh, Yoko. Brilliant. A brilliant parallel universe. Um, but yeah, what a what a year! I, I I think by pulling that apart and having a look at it, maybe the album makes a bit more sense in in terms of a, a diary or something disposable. And we're we're certainly waiting still. As I said, all of this, you know, we started discussing this in the context of hoping there'd be a box set. Hopefully, that will still come to add even more context and thoughts to what this album actually is. If Sean Lennon would like to come on and have a chat. We are firmly, yes. firmly, I think we can say we are firmly on his side that the box set should come out with the, the running order, with the track list, uh, as, as was intended, plus all the other good stuff. So, Sean, if you'd like to come on, and he could perhaps also enlighten us as to the last great unreleased project of that era. Uh, in September of 1973, John leaves for L.A. on the Lost Weekend, and it is announced that a planned musical by John and Yoko and Shirley MacLaine about Watergate has been scrapped. <laughs> yeah, is it too I'd late? Is it too late to resurrect that? I find that possibly not true. Anyway, um, what do you think, everybody? As usual, we want to send you back to the records. Go back and listen to Sometime in New York City and see what you think. Uh, we remain available in all the usual places. We're on Twitter, at BeatlesPod, the Nothing Is Real Facebook group, the website, www.nothingisrealpod.com, which is a gateway to all the other stuff that uh, that we are up to. And uh, we're always glad to hear from you. And there's extra bonus content over on our ACAST Plus channel. And thanks to everybody who's already subscribed. Um, But for now, I'm Jason Carty. I'm Stephen Cockcroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.